Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. He pulled out my pants, touched my, my um, testicles. Young black men strip search, humiliated, and violated. A lot of times, a lot of these men are embarrassed to come forward to talk about it. Why some are just now speaking out and why this is a nationwide crisis facing the culture. Plus, we revisit the gun violence problem that's affecting our communities, and it's not just about hip hop and the music. It's a really sad state that we still are killing each other. What's up, guys? It's your girl Kennedy on a chilly night here in LA on the black carpet for Will Smith's new movie, Emancipation. Hey, Kennedy! <laughs> I was like, oh, shit! Kennedy. I know, good to see oh, you. Wow. And Will Smith's on screen daughter talks about her emancipation experience. Seeing Will Smith in real life is like an out of body experience. <laughs> then Kirk Franklin is talking holidays. All of that tonight as the Black News Revolution starts now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Rochelle Ritchie. We begin with tonight's top story. The social media outrage in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the number of young black boys being strip searched, humiliated, and in many cases violated by the police. And we're just scratching the surface about why this is happening, not only in Wisconsin, but across the country, and why it's not being discussed. He pulled down my pants, touched my, my um, testicles. They, they like eased down and they put their hands right between my butt. Just pulled my drawers down and dug in my, dug in my, my rectum. This video from a Milwaukee news report, which aired over 10 years ago, has recently resurfaced online and gone viral. Igniting a firestorm of questions, outrage, and demands for answers and accountability for a form of police brutality many say is being swept under the rug. History shows us that these egregious incidents of abuse at the hands of police aren't new. In 1970, members of the Black Panther Party were stripped, searched, and even photographed. And the photographers weren't there by chance. They were summoned in advance by Frank Rizzo, who was, at the time, Philadelphia's police commissioner. In this interview, Rizzo openly expresses why he felt it was necessary to make an example of the local Black Panther Party. Their little angry, they were humiliated. We took their pants off them to search them. And I've learned one thing as a policeman, you never underestimate your opponent. You always get in there faster with more than it's necessary and you overpower them. Rizzo's reputation as tough and upholding law and order would later shape his political pursuits when he later became mayor of Philadelphia. 
Several decades later, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg would come under fire for his staunch support of stop and frisk. In leaked audio from 2015, Bloomberg is heard enforcing the practice with the intention of targeting young black and brown men. They are male minorities 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And these incidents are indeed still taking place in cities across the country. Disturbing video has surfaced of a police officer in Baton Rouge strip searching a 16-year-old. Chicago police officers who beat and strip searched a 14-year-old boy. A Detroit father says he was humiliated and horrified when a local police officer performed a body cavity search on him. An Orlando man was forced to drop his pants in public for a strip search and it was all caught on camera. Black men for the last three decades have been reporting uh, penetration by batons, screwdrivers, uh, fingers. Uh, white police officers stop young black boys who are teenagers. Uh, they they squash their testicles. They they engage in all forms of genital mutilation. They tase their genitalia, uh, as well as anally penetrating. Hey, stop! Come on, bro. You can't do that, bro. I can't. Remember, BLM made it uh, a, a huge issue to talk about sexual assault of uh, women who were victims of police officers. You know, the officer uh, Holesclaw uh, became a real how women were sexually victimized. But at the same time, you know, since all the way from Abner Luima, uh, the young brother, uh, Mr. Manning, was, was actually had his genitalia stomped by a white female cop. So these, these incidences are not rare. Uh, they're publicized, we know about them but they never seem to make it to the front page of any of the discussions we have about anti-Black racism, Black Lives Matter, or even a case or cause for civil rights. So Black men have really been forced to be represented pretty much as the dead bodies uh, of various news outlets present to the world uh, and then framed in death as criminals. You know, you have to remember that Black men hold a special place of negation uh, and, and horror in the minds of many Americans. So the idea that black men have been dealing with since the mid uh, 19th century is that black men are rapists. So black men, when they became free from enslavement, uh, were thought to have an insatiable sexual appetite for white women and young children. So in given that kind of lineage of, of negation and, and just uh, anti, we call it anti-black misandry in, in our field, but that level of anti-black misandry it's very difficult to reconceptualize groups of people that have historically been branded rapists as victims of rape. So the sexual vulnerability that black men have uh, to police officers, to other groups of men, uh, white vigilantes, uh, even to men and women in their own communities is not something that's, that's widely discussed. A lot of times, a lot of these men are embarrassed to come forward to talk about it. Um, it's humiliating to really talk about what happened, that they were touched inappropriately by law enforcement. But these young men that we're seeing going viral, they just had enough and they were young men and they told the truth. At the time when they did this, the media, uh, if you look at the video, it wasn't an organized shooting of it. Only one of them was sitting down, the other one was in the streets. But these were young street young men. Take the risk of coming forward 
um, and, and risk people calling you potentially homosexual or that you enjoy that type of activity. So, you know, the stigma that comes along with that. But then you have to go to court and then you have to sit in front of the judge or the jury and explain to them what happened. It's kind of difficult for um, um, some people to do that. So in, the, in that regard, police officers recognize that. So they continue and they realize that nobody's going to believe you. So I'm going to get away with this. A traffic stop and then you pull someone over out the car and then you want to start searching uh, their body cavity without a warrant, without any justification in that regard, it's, it's clearly illegal and it will be deemed illegal in court. Um, there's only certain circumstances and, and exigent circumstances in which the courts will even allow something like that to happen. Um, that if you don't comply, um, you will be uh, assaulted uh, or jailed or additional crimes may be placed upon you. So you really do have very little recourse. Um, so when that happens and, and someone contacts us, that's when we try to step in and and help them, you know, grieve their rights. All right, we'll be right back. I got much respect for them, the Migos, all of them. But as a black people, we need to start figuring out how can we put an element in our culture that we can stop hating each other, stop, stop being negative and being violent with each other. That is some of the reaction from Takeoff fans who attended his funeral three weeks ago. The tragedy rocked the hip-hop community. Offset continues to mourn the loss of his cousin and fellow Migos member. He shared an emotional tribute on his Instagram account, posting a photo of a smiling Takeoff wearing a gray suit and his signature shades, adding, missing everything about you, especially that smile. Welcome back, everyone. Tonight, we're having the conversation about gun violence and why hip-hop life is becoming more dangerous. Here to discuss more about gun violence in the hip-hop community are hip-hop homicide showrunner and executive producer P. Frank Williams and rapper Silk the Shocker. Thank you both gentlemen for joining us. P. Frank, I'm gonna start with you. Whether you call it rap beef, gangster rap, trap music, drill music, they're really not new concepts when you think about NWA, Biggie, Pac, but the number of rappers dying has significantly increased. What do you think has changed? It's a really sad state that we still are killing each other, but we're doing some of this in our own communities that have nothing to do with hip hop. So I wanna make sure that hip hop just exemplifies what other goes on. But I will say one thing, I think that, you know, before the rapper was celebrated, Shug P, you know, you was the man. And now I think he's become a, he or she has become a target. And I think social media, cloud chasing, all of that, I think it's just a big part of it. You know, when P&B Rock can come into the restaurant and Roscoe's in the middle of the day and shoot somebody, we out of control. I think it's, you know, some of these kids are on drugs. They don't have value for black life. And so I think that that's some of the big things that are different from some of the things that happened with, with Pac and Big and all of that stuff back in the day. Yeah, Silk, so when you hear what uh, P. Frank had to say, obviously losing PNB Rock was devastating for our culture, but there it did open the debate about rappers putting targets on their back by whether it's wearing flashy jewelry or even the sharing of their locations. Do you think that that is a problem that rappers need to consider more to eliminate the possibility of them becoming a target? It's, it's not supposed to be that way. You're supposed to be able to entertain, you know, be loved by you know, the people that love you. But in this way, in this day and age, I think because, you know, just the lack of knowledge, it's kind of you becoming a target for what, you, what you've done and what you have. And I've never really seen it to this, um, to this level. 
but I know that now it's an actual thing where it's like, because of who you are, they're actually targeting you. Before it's like, yo, I, I love this guy, I love what you do, and it, and you could be an entertainer, and then they kind of exempt you a little bit, unless you have like beef, like people say, unless you have some beef or something like that, where you know both sides have a misunderstanding, then that's it. But but normally it's just you just will be somebody who, uh, you know, who's love, but. Uh, and they'll they'll exempt you from that, but now it's like a target. So yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So I want to ask you, what do you think is the difference between when you know you were coming up in the rap game with No Limit and and now? What is the difference? It's a big difference. I, I was saying um, now I I'm not gonna lie to you. When I was growing up, the lack of me just knowing better um, and uh, and having the knowledge, I didn't have it. So that's how I know that everybody's impressionable. Like the, like I'm getting wrong, the music. Um, you know, it, it tells you exactly what it is, but back then I think we could distinguish the two. Now it's like we're, they're living through the music a little bit more. And back then I, I I didn't really see it, but I know that for a fact that I was hanging out in the streets, I was doing this, I was just whatever. And it's not it's not it's not glorified like it is now, meaning that you post something and know where you're at. You you um, whatever you do, it's like you, you're an open book now. And back then it was like, they had to come to the city you had to see you. Now it's like, oh, I know he's gonna be here. The whole world knows it. Um, and, I, and I would just tell you this part, for me, um, I think the young people do wanna understand and, and it, nobody wants to grow up, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. I think it's really is knowledge. And I know when I was younger, I think if somebody would have told me like, yeah, you can, go, you can end up going to jail for like 50 years, or 100 years or, or you could be somebody that your mom is burying because everybody thinks like, yeah, I'm tough. I'm gonna, I can go ride on my home, my enemies, whatever. You never think about that your mom might have to bury you. A lot of kids are saying stuff like, they have a bunch of jobs being open right now, right? Um, I don't want to work at McDonald's because they're gonna look at me like the funny and laugh at me, or I don't want to cut grass, or I'm, I don't want to catch a bus, or. But in actuality, all those people like that will end up being successful because you're learning and you're staying away from it, right? And I think nobody's telling the kids it's cool to 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 start a place and then put the gun out because if you're doing something productive, you're not even thinking about the gun violence, the violence. You're like, oh, I got to work at McDonald's. And guess what? They got people who, who worked at McDonald's who started off in fries and now they own a McDonald's. So you got to show the kids that. Show the kids another way. Anything you can another do way. So, Silk, let me. You got to. Yeah, let exactly. me bring um, P. Frank back into the conversation. You know, we lost, you yeah. know, P. Frank nearly about 20 rappers in 2022 alone. And you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, hip hop is tends to be blamed for some of the violence. What is the correlation, though, between gun violence and hip hop? First of all, like I said, I don't think you could separate the music from the street because a lot of the energy from the music comes from the streets. And it's not all street music, but the people who make it tell the stories of where they're from. And they're in those communities. They're still around some of those guys. You know, take off being in a dice game or being at that place three in the morning. Stuff happens in those kind of situations. And the show knows that, you know, from just being around in, 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 in the game. You know, our show, Hip Hop Homicides on WeTV, we explore Soldier Slim. You know what I mean? Magnolia Shorty, Magnolia Shorty from New Orleans who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I just, you just, it's just so dangerous right now. And I do think America has a gun violence problem and don't just say it's hip hop. And I do think that a lot of the young men have lack conflict resolution skills and that a lot of them are on drugs, Percocet, lean. And so their mentality is really crazy. You know, from what I see, 
I'm not sure if he's been blamed, but the young man who might have been involved in the takeoff situation was very young. You know, Mo3, who I did in Dallas, an episode about Pop Smoke was only 20 years old. The dudes that shot him, 15, 16. So I'm saying you're giving guns in the hands of people who are very young, who don't understand what's going on. And Silk, I have about uh, 15 seconds left just to ask you this, this question. What do you think it will take, though, for this sort of violence to come to an end? in the black community in general. I don't, like you said, I don't think it's the music so much. I think the education for the people listen to the music. You gotta be able to distinguish the two. And I think this last thing is the tough guys, you know, it's no awards for being tough. I think that we just gotta be able to distinguish the two and be able to be like, man, listen, the problem is having, it's some people who have a problem with somebody who have a problem thinking they have a problem with each other and they don't. We could talk it out, figure it out. And it's a common solution. It's like, if I'm beefing with him, I could talk to him like a man and then we could we, we might be best friends later on. So I think we just all about education. Um, and I think that that's gonna be able to think that's gonna, gonna help us out. Not that the music, music is entertainment. We should be able to say whatever we wanna say, but I think the people listening to it, we gotta educate them on it's just music. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Educating them on anti-violence and de-escalation. P. Frank Williams, Silk the Shocker, thank you all so much. All right, let's move on to the headlines beyond our borders as we go black all over the world. First stop, Brazil. Fresh off the heels of their election cycle, the now president-elect Luis Inacio da Silva has a lot to tackle when it comes to systemic racism in the country. We are dealing with um, extremely brutality from the police. So every day the police are shooting black people, especially young black guys. So us, like black community, we are suffering, we are so sad. Reports have found that black youth are murdered in Brazil every 23 minutes, meaning that 63 black Brazilians are murdered every day. Some citizens are calling it a genocide at the hands of police. It's true that racial mixture in Brazil is very high. Racism also still exists. Whiteness is still overvalued. Vidas Negras Importan, meaning Black Lives Matter in Portuguese, rings loud across Brazil, with organizations continuously fighting against the killings and calling for the protection of Black Brazilian boys and men. But change is on the way as the president-elect takes office. Now over to London, where racism at Buckingham Palace is once again in the headlines. Lady Susan Hussey, an honorary member at the palace, has stepped down and apologized after a black charity founder said she was questioned about whether she was really British during a royal reception. Ngozi Falani is the CEO of Sister Space, an organization that provides services to women of African and Caribbean heritage affected by abuse. She claims a member of the staff began a line of questioning that the palace called unacceptable and deeply regrettable. The reception hosted by Camilla, the queen consort, was where it all went down. Bellani, who is a British national, took to Twitter sharing the exchange, which included questions of her origin and, quote, where do your people come from? Lastly, we land in Haiti as the country continues to deal with an economic crisis, gang violence, the aftermath of an earthquake, and the deadly cholera outbreak. 
the hardest hit, malnourished young children. According to UNICEF, roughly 40% of cholera cases on the island is impacting the children. Malnutrition and cholera kind of feed each other. So if you're malnourished, you're going to be weaker. And so you're more likely to get cholera and die from cholera. Um, you know, someone who's very well fed and strong is less likely to at least get the worst form of cholera and, and can recover faster. So malnutrition will be an aggravating factor to cholera. This in a country where 60% of the population earns less than $2 a day. Adding to the horrifying statistics is the gang violence, which has spiked, preventing aid groups from getting to those who need help. We need to just put everything we can to it as fast as possible. For that, we need the resources, the people, the access. I think we can get the three of them. That's our mission, basically. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Kennedy Rue. Time to jumpstart what's happening in the entertainment remix. What's up guys, it's your girl Kennedy on a chilly night here in LA on the black carpet for Will Smith's new movie, Emancipation. It's Will's first premiere appearance since the Oscars. The Academy Award-winning star with his beautiful family by his side is moving forward to face critics and the public to deliver a powerful film he's proud of. I know, I know I'm sorry. sorry. So in making this film, Uncle yeah. Will, talk to me about how it changed your perception of the iconic photo yeah. of Whipped Peter. How do you look at that photo now? So what, what happened is it was, it was just a picture that I had seen when I was young. And now for me, all of those scars have stories to them. You know, that's not just one beating, that's a lifetime worth of beatings. And in, in Peter's writings, he talks about one of the times he was beaten into a coma. And he said in the coma, he met God. And when he came out of the coma, he was in a new place of faith and revelation. And, you know, that was one of the most interesting aspects of it to me when I, when I saw the difference between faith and revelation. And faith is when you're, you're trying to hold on. Revelation yes. is when you've heard the voice, you know. And Peter was just in a completely um, different spiritual mindset that is something that I aspire to. How does it feel that it's finally out and people get to see this film? Honestly, Kennedy, I watched the movie. It's one of the most life-changing pieces I've ever seen. It's a movie about freedom, and that's the coolest part of it for me, and I just think that it's a really important movie for right now in the world. I will come back to you! It's based off of a true story. The thriller about an enslaved man's fight for freedom welcomes Hollywood newcomer Amani Pullum. What if he don't come back? Your papa is going to be back. Do not ever stop believing that. Emancipation opens in theaters December 2nd and begins streaming December 9th on Apple TV+. It's the young starlet's first big movie, and as you can imagine, the 15-year-old was starstruck. 
You play Will Smith's daughter in the film. Talk to me about how your guys' relationship developed over the course of filming. I'm not a person that really gets starstruck a lot, but seeing Will Smith in real life is like an out-of-body experience. And I found, I found it a little bit challenging to like switch off from him being Will Smith to being my dad. My jaw was on the floor because it's Will Smith. I got more comfortable and able to like, you know, see him as my dad throughout the process of filming the movie. They break the bones in my body. But they never, never break me. You're also a student at NYU. What's college life like for you? I mean, you're almost living a double life as a student and an actress. Are you pulling all-nighters? Are you studying late nights in the library? Like, what does that look like for you? So actually, I'm a drama major, and it's kind of similar to the life that I was living before going to school. But I do pull a lot of all-nighters. So for my like little acting assignments, I like stay up super late and I wait to the last minute and then I do my assignments. But yeah. Even a broken heart has a song. Choir master and music icon Kirk Franklin is delivering more Christmas cheer. Kirk Franklin's The Night Before Christmas premieres December 10th on Lifetime with co-star Natori Naughton. The show can still go on. There's enough of us here to still pull something together. Okay, let's go! You can see. I have to ask you both because not only were you working with such a group of talented actors on this film, but also great musicians and great vocalists. What was the vibe like on set? Would you guys just break into song? Were you freestyling? Like, tell me what that energy was like. Yes, child, it was church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there were moments where where uh, there was just spontaneous uh, singing and, and fellowship and worship that was happening uh, in between takes. Just the camaraderie of, of, mm -hmm. of, of, of just everyone. You felt like everybody wanted to be there. And, 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 you know, and everybody was a fan of everybody. There's nothing that I love more than you. I'm gonna do better. I was really excited when I saw Kirk Franklin. If I saw his name, I mean, really, I, that's a dream in itself come true. And uh, Luke James' character, oh, he's so great in this movie, y'all. And the ladies, you're gonna love seeing plenty of Luke James. Um, so enjoy it on December 10th at 8 p.m. Listen up. We're about to take over the whole nation. And the hit star series BMF, otherwise known as Black Mafia Family, premieres in its explosive season two opener, January 6th. I'm talking to one of the biggest players in Detroit, right? I can respect that, brother. But remember, pride often comes before the fall. Snoop Dogg returns as Pastor Swift. For series star Ryan Lawrence, the gritty drama about a set of brothers who become game changers in hip hop gets close to home. Just know, you don't give me my money on time, I'm gonna kill you. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so I'm from the streets. So I, I've seen stuff like this, I've, I've been around uh, things like this. I, I know this lifestyle. So it was, it, I was able to kind of pull from that and also doing extensive research. So I was able to put that together and, you know, hope you guys 
you know, love what I did with the character. <laughs> Pledge allegiance to the Black Mafia family. Moving on to cases that caught our attention this week as we explore who's in the system. There is a time and a place, brother, when for those people who I do not know and do not owe any explanation, will get an explanation. And for Tory Lanez, that explanation will happen in court. Jury selection is underway for the trial involving Lanez, who was accused of shooting Megan Thee Stallion in the foot in 2020. Lanez denies the charges. He's been under house arrest until the trial officially starts. Hey, what's up, Tory? How's house arrest treating you? It's going all right. You're dealing with a possible jury pool that does know either party or both parties. And that is one thing that through jury selection that has to be filtered out because you want to get a jury that has an open mind without any preconceived biases. In terms of strategies from both sides, the prosecution has a difficult case because Megan Thee Stallion at the time of the shooting itself gave a different story. Her story was that she got injured by some broken glass and it wasn't until later on that she came forward with what happened that she was allegedly shot by Tory Lanez. In terms of the defense, as of now, if I were the defense attorney for Tory Lanez, I will not put forward that he will or will not testify. He needs to leave that avenue open. Recently, Lane sat with the Off the Record Spotify podcast to talk about the reality of his future. Guys, I am actively facing 24 years. Like, this is not no play-play situation. I've been in this for three years. I've never played internet games with you guys, and I'm not going to start now. It's a bittersweet victory for the family of Rayshard Brooks, who have reached a $1 million settlement with the city of Atlanta after Brooks was shot and killed by an Atlanta police officer in 2020. The shooting death sparked protests and outrage across the country. The officers involved will not face criminal charges. Now to Mexico, where Mexican authorities have issued an arrest warrant for the woman suspected of causing the death of 25 years. Hey everyone, it's Jalen here from the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. If you're a fan of business podcasts, then be sure to check out and subscribe to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast, a show that covers business, career development, and tips to increase your income. And the best part, it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. Year-old Shanquella Robinson. Robinson, a North Carolina woman, was found dead in her hotel room while vacationing with friends. They attacked her and it was nothing she could do and all she could say is no. She wasn't a fighter, no way. She has a good heart. Prosecutors in Mexico have requested the suspect, who they are not naming, be extradited from the United States to face charges of femicide, the act of killing a woman. Authorities say she was the direct aggressor against Robinson, a video of the alleged attack, which we will not show out of respect for the victim and her family, shows Robinson being brutally beaten in her vacation rental. In terms of Shaquilla Robinson's death, there were two options. Either the United States federal government could have prosecuted that person because she was an American citizen killed by an American citizen, or you leave it to the authorities of Mexico to do the prosecution. And in Mexico, just as an FYI, there are no jury trials. Your trial is before a single person, a judge. In October, local police reports state that Robinson's friends claim she had consumed too much alcohol. A doctor determined she was stable but dehydrated, adding Robinson's friends refused to send her to the hospital. The police report states that the Charlotte native went into cardiac arrest and was declared dead by 6 p.m. 
But an autopsy differed from that report, stating that medical officials declared Robinson dead at 3 p.m. on October 29th, her cause of death being a severe spinal cord injury and a dislocated neck. Robinson's family is demanding answers. We'll be right back. If we're just going to accept the system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, then we can't claim to be just. That is Michael B. Jordan defending Jamie Foxx in the 2019 drama Just Mercy. Welcome back. That film speaks to an issue we're tackling this week, unlocking and disrupting the cash bail system. For many, if you have money, you can buy your freedom. But what about the disenfranchised and those criminalized due to poverty? The incarceration rate and its effect on all sectors of society, particularly the people who are already disproportionately affected by the law and people who can't afford to buy their way out of it, is one that is deep and it is prolific. Over two and a half million people incarcerated, the United States is one of two countries in the world, along with the Philippines, that keeps people in jail because they cannot afford to post bail. The biggest change that needs to come to the criminal justice system that I think can be uh, accessed and understood without even talking about race is removing commercialism and capitalism from systems of law. Could you afford to pay $5,000 to get out of jail? No, ma'am. How long did you sit in jail for? Three months. You have uh, a cash bail system that then takes uh, people who usually don't have a lot of money economically. Not only are they already being over-policed, but they don't have a lot of money to participate in civil society as it is. When the judge decided that I needed to come up with $500 cash in order to be able to await my trial as a free person, I was never asked if I could afford the amount. I could not and was sent back to myself. The current system profoundly affects black women who account for 44% of incarcerated women and 80% of those black women are single mothers, like Starmony Jackson, who spent a week away from her children while in jail. Unable to call into work, I lost my job at a nursing home because I could not pay my rent. We lost our home. It took me months to recover financially. Activists across the country are winning city and state battles to change the system. In Detroit, judges must now go on record on how implementing cash bail will protect the community. In 2017, then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie signed a law giving judges the power to detain anyone without bail and abolish cash bail for nonviolent defendants. I'm also sensitive to the fact that he's working and he's supporting four children. So I'm satisfied that um, I'll release him on level three. Condition of your release though, and I very rarely do this, you have to be employed, all right? We're gonna monitor you now, you all right? All right. In 2021, Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois signed a historic criminal justice reform bill into law that will end cash bail statewide by 2023, making Illinois the first state in the nation to do so. One that remarks a transformative step forward in Illinois' effort to lead the country in dismantling systemic racism. 
In California, the state Supreme Court eliminated cash bail for defendants who can't afford it, determining the system unconstitutional. And federally, the Pre-Trial Integrity Safety Act of 2021 was introduced to the House for consideration by California Representative Ted Lieu. Incarceration should be a final option. It should be the last thing that we consider, understanding that people have jobs, they have children that they could lose as a result of being in jail. So that's a lot to lose. Or again, something you might not be guilty of. Joining me for more on this conversation are nationally recognized advocate for criminal justice reform, Glenn Martin, and activist Oliver Mack, who is joining us from his car, who is also known as the right-wing angel. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you, Oliver, for joining us. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. Really quickly, what is wrong with the cash bail system? Everything. Uh, our cash bail system essentially undermines justice and fairness, disproportionately harms black and poor people, I mean, it really is a monetization of misery. As an entrepreneur, I understand the importance of people being able to engage and make money in a capitalist society. At the same time, I think I, I know I draw the line where you're profiting off of the punishment of other people. And the history of cash bail proves that no one should be profiting off the punishment of others. Oliver, what is, what is your response to the fact that, you know, Glenn is saying that our cash bail system is problematic all around? I just don't believe that it's a problem that the black community should be focused on. I mean, out of the list of all the issues that plague the black community, I wouldn't even rank it within the top 40. If the black community would focus more on keeping are people out of that system rather than focused on changing that system, I think we can make a lot of more a lot more headway in terms of making sure that our people didn't end up having to experience that. But Oliver, when you think about cases like if you think of Khalif Browder um, in New York, spent three years on Rikers Island for allegedly stealing a backpack, couldn't afford a $3,000 bail, and he ended up spending three years in jail. Does that sound like justice to you? Does that sound like a cash bail system that actually works? You can take situations like that and say, yes, maybe there should be some reform to the bail system in terms of petty crimes. But yet and still, we have to focus on the fact that it's an actual crime that's being committed. So we have a lot of situations, just like in New York, where we had a reform done to the bail system and it ended up costing people their lives. So we had an actual person who got on, on bail and actually stabbed a woman 40 times while he was out on bail. And then you also have situation that was in Wisconsin where the guy got on a yeah. bill and ended up going running over 60 people and killing six. So you've got to look at it in that through that lens as well. You know, the, mo the most longstanding diversion program in America has been white skin and privilege. The fact of the matter is that the Constitution needs to apply to everyone. There are a lot of wealthy white people in this country accused, not convicted. You said convicted. These people are accused of a crime and they're able to sit at home and fight their case. They have more access to their lawyers. They have more access to researchers that can help make the case. Folks are still innocent until proven guilty in this country, except black and brown defendants are 10 to 25 percent more likely to be detained pretrial and to receive financial conditions uh, for their release. Young black men in particular are 50 percent more likely to be detained pretrial. The truth is violent crime is up all across our country. We need to do something about it. But prisons have become the repository for people who failed out of all these other systems, housing, education, health care, mental health, poverty, you name it. People don't wind up in jail because they wake up in the morning and say, I want to go to jail. Many of them wind up there because we've criminalized all these things. Yeah, but they do wind up going to jail because they're committing crimes. Like, that's that's the number one factor that we have. I'm to take allegedly, I'm surprised. I'm surprised a conservative wouldn't hang his hat 
on the Constitution, allegedly. We're talking about people that are accused and charged, not convicted, and there's a huge difference in what those words actually mean. But, Oliver, some people would say there are criminals that deserve to not walk out of jail without any li limitations. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it depends on the crime. So if you do have a crime, a violent crime, where that person has a chance or an opportunity to go out and do something else, then that person should remain in jail. But, I mean, we do have cases where, yes, you may think that this person, well, they're, they're just accused, but when the evidence is mounting up against that person and we do have history that shows that this person may go out and commit a crime again, then I think we also have to take that into consideration. Well, you're talking about recidivism there. And what's interesting about this is yes. that in your own state, you're in Texas right now, you're in Houston, your own state has sort of revamped its cash bail system to not keep people in jail that are actually low-level offenders. Glenn, I want to ask you, how does this actually impact uh, law-abiding citizens, and what would be your approach to changing the system? The punishment is in the process. The majority of these people that are sitting in jail on any given day, over a half a million, Essentially, many of them will be found innocent in the end. Many of them will be found at the charges that are against them. The majority of them will be reduced, even if they are convicted of any of those charges. Many states have gotten rid of their cash bail or reduced cash bail for huge categories. And what they have found is the only thing they couldn't resolve in those situations is the racial disparity that continues to plague our criminal justice system. But they have found that people actually show up to court and there's no evidence that show that people do not reoffend while they're waiting to go back to court. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that in Washington D.C., they got rid of their cash bail system, and even though they had 90, they released 95 percent of low-level offenders. 90 percent of them still showed up to court uh, to face the judge. So, Oliver, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us here on Revolt Black News Weekly. We look forward to having you again, and we'll be back with our revolutionary of the week. We're about to go out here and bring 110 chess boards to Compton, Compton, and meet the man himself. <laughs> Yo, what's up? It's Damon Fletcher, King Damon Fletcher, running a program, Train of Thought, We're serving 21 elementary schools in the Compton Unified School District. We're showing them the love and the gift of chess is, you know? That is Corey Jacobs on a mission and following through to deliver chess sets to students at Jefferson Middle School in the Compton School District as part of his The Gift of Chess involvement. Welcome back, everyone, as we deliver another Revolutionary of the Week. Before we go, we are shining some light on a father-daughter duo who are turning up the YouTube game and being true ambassadors when it comes to diversity. Nine-year-old musical artist Gracie Hollingsworth is a viral sensation. Her YouTube channel promotes education and an outlet for black creators. Her story is what makes her our revolutionary of the week. Give it up for the Hollingsworth family, bringing a new meaning to representation realness. Gracie's story began by doing what many kids enjoy at her age, watching educational videos on YouTube. Except she noticed a trend, not enough diversity. There was this one moment I remember uh, walking in on my daughter crying to my wife uh, once, and it was an issue related to how her hair looked. And, you know, from that moment, we realized, like, okay, it's important for us to make sure that she realized that her hair, just the way it is, is beautiful. 
That's when she and her father decided to take matters into their own hands, especially when it comes to representing black American young people. In our case, uh, we were focusing on education uh, at the same time in increasing diversity um, because most children uh, uh, cartoons, we have about 5.6% that are children of color, so this was something that really was needed, so that was our main focus. Yeah. Come on, clap, 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 clap. And with each new lesson, song, and dance came a new viewer subscribing to their channel, making it a hit. Just last month, the channel pulled in 77 million views. Here I am, here I am, how do you do? Not only do the show's catchy songs attract young minds and families alike, the program comes with educational tools to help represent the next generation of black scholars. And the Hollingsworth family says they're just getting started, routinely working with educators and building the tools that make learning fun for everyone. Well, that makes me feel very appreciated for all the people that have been giving us the followers and all the likes yeah. and all the support. I absolutely love what Gracie's Corner is doing for kids in our community. Yes, job well done, Gracie. That's all for us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Everyone, it's DJ Candy Rain here from the Carefree Black Girl Podcast. If you're a fan of music, entertainment, and black women, then be sure to check out and subscribe to the Carefree Black Girl Podcast, a show that covers all things carefree, black, and girl. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.